Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, well, she awaits you there now, as usual. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. She has a lovely smile on today, but I, I guess you can't really see that in the chat room. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yes, we have a fabulous chat room, a great group of people, great conversation, very stimulating, enlightening, and oftentimes very humorous, too. So do come join us. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat if you can't join us live you can always go back and look at the chat log because we often post up extra earls and and uh, any other information up in there so do come join us provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat all right in today's spotlight i wish to focus for a moment on the issue of trust who or what are we to trust when under what circumstances and for how long think about that for a moment I saw a t-shirt this week with this on it, Trust the Government, printed in black bold lettering, but underneath, printed in a shade of gray just slightly darker than the gray shirt, were these words, said no founding father ever. We have hosted a number of professionals on this show who have offered evidence of all sorts of things, extraterrestrials, Early hominid life is existing here well before the dating given us by modern science, life after death research, remote viewing experiences, and clandestine undertakings by different governments of the world, ranging from the Tuskegee syphilis experiment to many of the forms and branches of MK Ultra experimentation. We learned that the U.S. Navy used the fog in San Francisco to test the distribution of a biological agent on the trusting population of the Bay Area. I could go on, but the question, who do we trust? What do we believe? Remains. There are many people today who no longer find it easy to trust much of anything or anyone. We're all aware that the media lies to us, our politicians lie to us, our leaders lie to us, and so forth. So we assume that everyone lies, and we seem to accept that. We reviewed the studies with Professor Dan Ariely on this show, published in his book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. So we know for a fact that everyone lies, but is there a qualitative difference to these lies? The answer here is a resounding yes, of course. There is quite a difference between the person who exaggerates their prowess and someone who makes up stuff like coming under gunfire when no such thing ever occurred. There is also quite a difference between the so-called little white lie and the rapist deception intended to cause you to let your guard down and trust them. It turns out that the word trust has almost become an introduction to suspicion and perhaps even paranoia. And yet, as Eric Hoffer once said, someone who thinks the world is always cheating him is right. He is missing that wonderful feeling of trust in someone or something. The fact is, we must trust. We cannot distrust everyone all of the time. We need to be able to trust to survive. Societies are built on trust even when not every brick of the foundation is as solid as we'd like it. Frank Crane is credited with this reminder. You may be deceived if you trust too much, but you will live in torment if you don't trust enough. I know that to be true, for when I retired as a detection of, a of deception examiner, I was pretty jaded and paranoid. However, a dear friend of mine was able to convince me that you are better to trust too much than never to trust at all. Today I see trust as something provisionally granted. I will listen to others, but that does not mean I go away believing everything I hear. No, I believe it is incumbent upon all of us to offer a form of provisional trust, guarded by our discerning intellects. That said, 
When the intellect informs us that we are being deceived, we need to heed its warning despite our sometimes emotional attachments and desires. My thoughts anyway. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, you know, I totally agree. It's better to trust too much than um, not trust enough. That certainly helps you live a better life. Uh, when it comes to politics right now, I don't know that that would hold. You know, as you said, the emotions are getting involved. One of the things I'm seeing out there is um, if you are emotionally inclined towards one candidate, then whatever the other candidate says, you're going to jump down. But you'll ignore the stuff of your own candidate. And it happens in both directions. Um, I think it's really important there to stop and think again. I don't think you can trust anyone in government. <laughs> Sorry, there's my own jadedness going on there. Well, I don't know um, about But stopping and thinking again about what's being said, I think uh, will certainly help you make a more informed decision. And then, you know, I think we also should think about the domains, the areas where we're talking about trust. It's one thing to extend trust where there's no danger, but our guest yes. today may qualify that somewhat, okay? All right, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our guest was Dr. Nick Martin, and we discussed his books on ego therapy. Mark wrote, the problem with the word ego is that it is a word originated by Freud to mean a particular thing. Since then, it has come to mean anything anyone wants it to mean. Amen to that. Judy commented, I always cringe when someone says edging God out instead of ego. I love the idea of ego being another form of energy. Richard wrote, I'm not just connecting to real solid concept here. Energy, what? Does this jibe with any kind of brain science? Doesn't make sense to me on a rational basis. Ego, what energy? All right, moving on. Christian wrote, I've been playing intertalk programs in my office while seeing my patients for the past 10 years with amazing results. They have, pro they have a profound transformative effect on listeners. Jennifer wrote, if you want a great read and you want to challenge what you believe, read What If by Eldon Taylor. It is the best, the hardest, and the most difficult book I have read, and I love it. Well, now, I, I guess I like that too, don't you? And Smile wrote, I so admire Dr. Ellen Taylor, first of all, and likewise admire his courage for daring to expose what is going on and being done to us. His book, Gotcha, an eye-opener. It is interesting to me that as I recommend this book to others, the most common response is, oh, I don't want to read that kind of thing. It's too scary. <laughs> is it any less scary to know we are being manipulated, programmed, and controlled without our awareness? The only way we can avoid and overcome this kind of mental manipulation, commercial manipulation, is to recognize how it is being done and be able to think for ourselves. All this book is really about is rediscovering just that, how to think for ourselves again, how to recognize the priming, the games, the subtle manipulations for what they are, and then think for ourselves. That is the one true freedom we all possess. But when we choose ignorance, we choose blindness as well, deafness as well, and slavery as well at some level. And dare I point out that this attitude is exactly what the puppet masters would rule us, control us, and manipulate us, would have us adopt to subvert our own freedom. Don't believe me? Read this book. Wake up and think for yourself. Realize what is going on around you and being done to you. It isn't half as scary as ignorance. Now, I don't know about you, Ravinder, but we need this guy to promote our material. That's <laughs> a great book review. Definitely. All right. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, Dangerous Instincts, How Gut Feelings Betray Us with our special guest, Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole. When I say special guest, I mean truly special guest. So let me tell you a little about her. Mary Ellen O'Toole, Ph.D., has spent her career studying the criminal mind. One of the most senior profilers for the FBI until her retirement in 2009, Dr. O'Toole has helped capture, interview, and understand some of the world's most infamous peoples, including... Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer, Derek Todd Lee, and Sean Vincent Gillis, both serial killers in Baton Rouge. 
the collar bomb case, a bank robbery and murder of a pizza delivery man, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, the polyclass child abduction, David Parker Ray, a serial sexist sadist, the Red Lake school shooting, the monster of Florence serial murder case, the Zodiac serial murder case, the bombing during the 2002 Olympics in Salt Lake City, the mass murder in Florence, Montana in 2001. Dr. O'Toole also worked the Elizabeth Smart and Natalie Holloway disappearances, the Columbine shootings, and many other high-profile cases. Her law enforcement career spanned 32 years, beginning in the San Francisco District Attorney's Office when she was a criminal investigator. Dr. O'Toole worked as an FBI agent for 28 years, spending more than half of her bureau career in the organization's prestigious behavioral analysis unit, the very unit that is the focus of the hit crime series, Criminal Minds. Dr. O'Toole is an internationally recognized forensic behavioral consultant who regularly works with corporations, government agencies, law enforcement, education institutions, mental health, and the media. She specializes in the recognition and assessment of concerning, troubling, and dangerous behaviors that, if unaddressed, can have a wide range of serious consequences from loss of business and revenue to loss of lives. She is the director of the Forensic Science Program at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. This is one of the most elite forensic science programs in the United States, which provides both graduate and undergraduate degrees in forensic science. She directs a faculty of experts in a wide range of sciences, including DNA, crime scene investigation, forensic chemistry and biology, forensic facial reconstruction, forensic anthropology, and crime scene behavior. Dr. O'Toole is also a full-time professor at the university and provides training in analytical thinking, ethics, and character. And you know, I could go on for quite a bit more with her credentials. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole. Thank you very much. Very much looking forward to the show with you for more than one reason, um, but I'll get to that in a minute. Let's begin by having you tell us a bit more about yourself. How and why did you become a profiler? Well, I've always been interested in why people commit violent crimes, what goes on in their head when they're, um, for example, killing someone. And that interest uh, really went back to, to my childhood. So that was was a part of who I was as a little girl. But when I went to college, women could not be FBI agents. J. Edgar Hoover would not allow it. Um, so when I finally um, graduated, and um, my, my background is actually in mental health counseling, I just had this very uh, strong calling to go into law enforcement. And my first job was with the San Francisco District Attorney's Office and as an investigator. And from there, I was recruited into the FBI, and once in the, in the FBI, I worked a lot of different violent crime cases. Um, but I let people know my background is mental health. If you have cases involving people that, you know, have a mental health issue or they're unusual in some way, I'm happy to help you out and do the interviews. And that led into my learning more about profiling and then raising my hand and saying, that's something that I'd like to specialize in. I also also should tell you, my father was an FBI agent, and my mother was a private secretary for J. Edgar Hoover off and on. So it's a little bit experience, and it's a little bit of um, FBI in my DNA, I think. <laughs> okay, well, I would say so. That sounds like it. A little bit of juice it didn't hurt bit. you, I'm sure, either. Okay. <laughs> but I have to ask you this now, and this is one of the reasons I really wanted to talk to you. Uh, our youngest son will be attending university next year. And he is looking at universities where he can obtain a degree, a degree uh, in criminal justice, criminal science. And we happen to have one of the 14 that is highly rated and approved in Washington. That's the Seattle University. But he's unsure. So, you know, is that what he should major in? Or, I mean, what's your doctorate in? Psychology, criminal justice, forensic science, mental health counseling? Where are you? No, actually. What should he do? Well, I think Seattle University is a great program. In fact, I have a very good friend who's um, part of that program out there. So it's a it's a it's a great program, and it's one where your son would would learn a lot that would prepare him for a career um, in criminal justice. 
and that could range anywhere from uh, coming into the FBI to, um, you know, working in, in um, you know, a state agency um, or even working ultimately in a crime lab if, if he wanted to pick up um, a forensic science degree at some point. So it really does give him a broad-based um, um, training and background, especially if he is interested in working in this area. And there's just so much that's interesting in the criminal justice area that everybody, I really think if you're passionate about it, you, you'll find a niche because there just really you know, is so much to understanding human behavior when you're looking at it through the lens of criminal justice. So it's a good choice. I think you'll like it. And it will prepare him for um, a great career. And, and is it better to do the criminal justice degree than, say, the do a degree in psychology or in computer science, if that's his direct aim? Well, you know what I tell students today? I just say, look, what do you really like? Say if somebody wants to come into the FBI. The FBI will t- accept um, applicants with any college degree, so you don't have to do the accounting or the law degree like when my father went through the became an FBI agent. So major in uh, a, a, a discipline where you'll be successful and you'll finish and you'll get the good grades and you'll become motivated. So for some people it's psychology. Frankly, for some people it might be um, music. Uh, we have agents who got their bachelor's degree in home economics or early childhood development, but they loved it. They were passionate about it. They studied hard, got good grades, and they graduated with their degrees, um, and they came into the FBI. So follow your passion um, instead of following what somebody tells you to do because I've seen kids lose interest in a degree that they didn't want to begin with. Okay. Uh, I guess I'll leave it there. Let's talk about your book. Chapter one begins with several scenarios designed to illustrate your point about the fallibility of our gut instincts. And, and you use this as a teaching method. I, uh, I wonder if you'd be so kind as to provide one of your scenarios to our audience and then flesh it out for us. Perhaps something like the example used in your book with uh, Joe Lorette. Um, or any other. Well, I actually start the book with my own personal experience. And um, I indicated that I had some work done in, in, in my house, and I had vetted the person that was going to do it. Um, but lo and behold, they bought somebody with them to, to help them do the work, and they were in my home for you know a couple of days and finished it. And then about six months or maybe a year later, um, the person, that the helper, uh, was actually arrested for a very serious crime, um, hiring a hitman and um, mm. to, to, to murder their girlfriend. So I found that shocking because when he was in my home, he was actually polite, um, nice, um, quiet, um, didn't cause any trouble. There was no evidence of, of um, you know, any behavioral issues. And yet when he was on his own time and engaged in his own life, he's hiring a hitman. And, I mean, that really drove home to me the message that, you know, physically assessing someone in terms of their dangerousness doesn't work. You really have to do a much more thorough job of, of really sizing somebody up. And I had sized up the main person and I think did a good job on that, but not on his helper. And um, it, it just goes to show even somebody with my experience can find themselves in that kind of a situation. You know, I like what you say. I mean, I'm just going to tell our audience this. Everybody should read this book, and then you should pass it on to everybody that you love or care about, uh, because there's some incredible information here that would do well for all of us to understand. But tell us why you think luck, intuition, and instincts are dangerous. I say that because people will use the phrase, phrase, well, I'll just, my gut tells me, that this person is safe, or my gut tells me that, um, you know, I'm going to hire this person, um, they're the best applicant. We do not have um, internal barometers that we're born with that help us make good decisions versus bad decisions. That simply does not exist. And even if it did exist, this internal barometer of good, of good decision-making we, we're all not created equal, so we wouldn't all have an equally good 
barometer. And there are some days when we're off because we don't feel good or we just had a death in the family or somebody, um, we broke up with our spouse or a loved one. So there are so many circumstances that can affect our ability to make good decisions on a daily basis, even if you did believe that you had a, 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 a gut instinct. And our gut instinct, usually when you talk to people about making decisions based on their gut, they will tell you very superficial reasons for for why they made the decision that they did. And if they have no experience in the in the area where they're making the decision, they're really just throwing the dice. So I'll give you an example. Um, I, I worked with a lot of victims, and if they survived and I had the opportunity to interview them, I would often ask them, why did you get into that car? Or why did you bring that man into your home um, and introduce him to the children? And they'll say, well, you know, I just, my gut tells me he was a good guy and he wasn't going to hurt anybody and he had a good job and he, um, he um, you know, he, you know he, was, he had a nice car and he was nice to me. Those are not indicative of anything. In fact, there are some people in this world who are so smooth and, and so charming, they can hide um, behind that um, nice, good job, nice clothes veneer, but behind, behind that can be actually a, a pretty dangerous individual. So when it came down to it, what I was hearing my victims tell me is that they were basing their decisions on very superficial um, indicators for threatening individuals or even dangerous individuals. You do a great job in your book of just spelling out several examples of that, setting them up as tests. So as the reader goes through, they can they go through the scenario on which one of these would I choose? Do I choose to get in the automobile? Assume I'm hitchhiking. This is one of your models. Do I choose to get into the automobile, uh, this older automobile with this fellow who has two people in the back? Or do I get into this air-conditioned automobile with a driver and, and a wife and a, and a baby? You know, which ride do I take, you know, and and of course, I think most people when they're con- they're looking at a scenario like that, they say, well, I'm going to go with a nicer car. It's air conditioned. It's a hot day and his wife and his child are here. And as you right. point out in a real life case, that's exactly the wrong thing to do, the wrong way to make a decision. It, it's absolutely the wrong way. And here in the D.C. area, we have what's called slugging, which is, is a concept I'd never heard of living on the West Coast. And slugging means that you stand in line um, every day to go to work into D.C. and and cars come up and they pick you up because it it gives them two or three people in a car and, and you drive into D.C. and eventually you're you'll get to know the person that's driving every day, um, but. The reality is you don't know anything about this person, not really. You don't know if they're taking medication. You don't know if they just had, again, something happened in their personal life, so they're very distracted while they're driving. You don't know if they um, 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 have go through road rage. You really don't know anything about them, and yet you're getting in the car, and they're driving you at 65, 70 miles an hour, and you're really at their mercy, and yet it happens every day. You think it's the economy of our lifestyles that gives rise to this kind of shortcut thinking? You know what I think it is, um, and I've and I've studied it and written about it. I think people believe that the way that they size up and read other people is really quite good, and they'll base it on one or two examples in their life where it turned out to be fine. But they don't go back and look at all the times in their life where they may have um, just kind of been lucky and, and gotten, you know, missed uh, a bad situation or look at the times when they've made bad decisions. But I, I do find, even with my contemporaries, my, my, my peers, I'll ask them how they make choices and decisions. And sometimes it's actually very appalling, the, uh, the, the way that they make decisions about other people and bringing them into their life or excluding other people from their life. Most people don't have training in this area. They simply don't. So they, they, uh, they expose themselves to situations that are, are really can be quite um, 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 dangerous. So it's a, it's a matter of overconfidence uh, about our ability to read or judge people it, that gives it, rise to it in your view. It is. And when you look at for example, when you look at these superficial um, indicators, 
good job, a nice home, must be a good person. That tells you nothing about that person. And parents send their children or approve their children going to um, um, overnight slumber parties or, sure, pick up my child at, at, um, at soccer. That's great. I appreciate it. Knowing nothing about the person you're turning your child over to. We used to say in the FBI, people were more likely to turn over their child to a stranger, to somebody that they didn't know, than they were to turn over their car under the same set of circumstances. They're more likely to allow their child to go with a stranger than they would turn their car over to a stranger. That's crazy. We have a hard break here. We've got to go to break. When we come back, I want to have you explain, if you will, what you call your SMART model. We're speaking with Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole about her work and terrific book, Dangerous Instincts. And again, everyone should read this book and share it with everyone you love. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room today of our guest discussing the new journal on violence and gender. So if you're not in the chat room already, now's a great time to get over there. But remember, if you're driving or otherwise unable to open your computer right now, you can come back later and review the chat room details, including the video. Okay, please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times bestselling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High Is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole about her work and book, Dangerous Instincts, How Gut Feelings Betray Us. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music psychology is not just a new hobby of mine. It's a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and of course, social behavior. All right, we just played some of Fields of Gold by Sting, Dr. O'Toole, so please tell us, 
Why is this music important to you, and how does it instruct us about who you are? Um, yeah, the music was beautiful, too. Thank you for playing that. I love that song, um, and it, it seems that no matter who sings it, it it's a beautiful song. It's very uh, peaceful, and it's very cal- it's a very calming song. Um, it, it's very relaxing, and um, I'm very much of an introvert, so... I love the opportunity to just sit and listen to a song that takes me into, you know, a, a very um, calm and, and safe place to sit and think and daydream. Um, it's not upsetting. There are words in the, in the song that just make you feel um, very relaxed. It's whimsical, and I like that. Um, and I think being an introvert, I like, um, I spend a lot of time alone, and I, you know, I like the comfort of music like that. So there's no romance in this for you? Feel her body rise when you kiss her mouth among the fields of gold? Well, I think that is, but I think just generally for me, it's it's the whole idea of just that, just the, the peacefulness of the song that, that really resonates with me. All right, so I won't pursue that any further. After all, you're the profiler, so I'll let you play with the, the lyrics might okay. mean to you. Tell us about Smart. Well, in the book, I, I write about the SMART model, and, and, and that encompasses um, a number of different areas in terms of how to make a decision. And the word SMART stands for um, a sound method of assessing and recognizing trouble. And it's not tied to a particular situation. It just is a way to make better decisions. And I actually outline the kinds of decisions where you'd want to apply this. It's not to every decision that you make and probably not to most in your life. Whether you order order a pizza or decide on a pair of shoes to purchase, those are not um, decisions that you would, you'd want to apply this to. The, de- the decisions that are really critical in your life tend to be very rare decisions. Those are the ones where people um, find themselves most often getting into trouble. Um, and those kinds of decisions are whether or not to get married, for example, um, whether or not to buy a house, you know, which college do you go to, um, how do you respond to someone who seriously um, aligns you professionally. So people have the least amount of experience in that area, making rare decisions. Um, and, and that's where the, the smart um, the, the, the smart. Um, idea is is really the most helpful, and that's where it would probably um, mean the most. Or if your decision, if you make it incorrectly, could cause you um, severe um, physical harm or even death, and that would be a decision like um, you're stranded on the side of the road and um, someone offers to give you a ride somewhere, or if you're at a college, uh, you're in college and you're, you're out with a group of people, um, and you don't know them very well, and they want to want to go bar hopping, and you're drinking at every bar along the you know along University Avenue. I mean, those are the kinds of decisions that really require um, um, assessing and figuring out how do I deal with this? What are the best choices for me to make? Let's revisit, if we may, then based on the smart model. This incident where you brought this fellow into your home and he brought a helper. Mm-hmm. Twenty twenty hindsight, would you yeah. have done that any differently when the helper arrived? Well, I would have. Um, I would have. And what I, what I would have done was to do an assessment on him, um, talk to him to find out something about his background and not relied on, on the, the primary person um, that I had hired to do the work. So I would have asked him questions. I would have found out something about his background. And um, if he didn't give me the answers that um, I thought were um, were good answers, then I would have simply said, um, I don't want you to bring this, this man around my house to the, to the person that I, that I actually did hire. But, I see, I relied. I, I put the assessment of the secondary person um, I, I allowed the the, uh, the one man that I hired, the, the primary carpenter, I allowed him to do the assessment, and that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Okay, so now a lot of people will hesitate right there because 
the minute you tell your primary person, I don't want you to bring the secondary person in, because you suspect the secondary person. If the secondary person is indeed dangerous, doesn't that perhaps um, present the possibility that they're even more dangerous to you? I mean, isn't that how many people will think about that? You mean that they they will not like your attitude and come back and hurt you? Right. And in other words, you'll the average person I think will balk at doing that, even if their better sense says so, because of the fear of reprisal. And I've heard that a lot. Uh, people will say, "Well, I don't want him to come back and hurt me." So here's your option. Your option is you're uncomfortable with this man. We'll call him um, Tom. You're uncomfortable with Tom. Now you. Do you really think you have two choices? Allow this uncomfortable man in your home um, and exposing him to all of your, your, your family members and your valuables and your comfort zone, or option number two is to politely explain that um, you just want to go with, with the one worker or your, your, your budget did, did not allow for two workers or to design some kind of a scenario where you can politely explain that having him inside your home is just not going to work this time. So you don't, you're presented with two not very comfortable options at that point. And so right. are you really going to, are you really going to default to the one where you say, I just don't have enough um, courage to tell this person I don't want them in my home, but in a very polite and, and gracious way, um, are you just going to, let them inside your home that's not a good decision whatsoever to do that right okay so what are the typical red flags that most people miss when they're making their evaluations one of the worst uh one of the worst indicators that you have to be aware of is are you making an emotional decision is it based on i really want this done fast i really want this house i love this house um i love this this man, I, he's just everything I've been waiting for. If you tend to be um, a person who makes um, quick decisions and, um, and very emotional decisions, you need to slow down because that tendency is going to create problems for you. That's number one. Um, are you making decisions without um, very much hard or real data? Um, that's the, another a problem that people have. They will not. They will not spend the time to develop more information to decide. Now, okay, I've got all this information. What do I want to do? Um, or people who make decisions on again what what I call very superficial criteria. For example, um, they live next door to me. They, he has a nice job. She has a good job. Their yard is is well maintained. There's no research in the world that will tie those kinds of characteristics to whether or not somebody um, is violent, abuses drugs, abuses animals, children, or whatever. So if you find yourself making decisions that could cost you um, dearly and you're making them on, on superficial indicators, you really need to stand back and say, okay, so what is it that I want to, you know, what is it that I want to evaluate um, somebody on? Okay, so let's do this. Now, I think it's easy for our audience to think of the kinds of things that you should be, you know, uh, seriously concerned about if you're marrying someone. But buying a house? I mean, what is it I'm supposed to evaluate when it comes to buying a house other than the price and the mortgage and maybe the neighborhood? Well, I'll I'll tell you, um, oftentimes people will... um, they will. They fall in love with a house, and they will not get. Um, they're getting a good deal, and so they're, they will waive things like um, the um, having someone come in and and do the um, kind of the assessment on the house to indicate, you know, tell you whether or not you have any problems because you want to grab it before somebody else grabs it. So you. You say, I don't need that, and then you own the house, and, and then all of a sudden, all of these problems start to develop, um, that now you're in a position that you have to pay for. Or another very common one is that people will look at the neighborhood and they'll say, this neighborhood looks pretty nice. The homes are well-maintained, but they know nothing about their next-door neighbor that they're going to move into and possibly live next door to for 20 years. They don't know if this neighbor is someone that is threatening, someone that um, um, just watches them all the time and, and looks for the the 
first opportunity to uh, make a complaint about, um, you know, how you how you cut your grass or the color that you paint your house, or you don't know any information. This is the big one. People know nothing about a homeowners association um, and how it's run in a particular neighborhood. And until it's too late, they move in, and they find out that the neighbors hate each other. And in one instance, the band told me that at their homeowners meetings, they had to hire off-duty police officers to come to the mm-hmm. HOA meetings because the members of the HOA hated each other so much they were fearful of, of violence and people often don't don't dig into those kinds of um, infor- that, that kind of information about the house or the neighborhood. So, so the real point here of dangerous instincts. What I wanted to get to is that this isn't just about keeping yourself safe from like the standpoint of, you know, I'm going to be attacked, assaulted, robbed, raped, or something of that nature. This is about protecting my assets, my, you know, my treasures of all sorts and forms, including my peace of mind. Right, right. Okay. I loved your book. I mean, um, I, I hope you understand it. I hope our audience understands that. But I want to talk to you about some of the cases that you've handled and some of the other things that you've done uh, with the Bureau because, you know, they're, I guess they're kind of the, what shall we say, the exciting things. So who's the most dangerous offender you ever interviewed? And please share what this experience was like for you. Um, it, I think the most dangerous person that I've ever interviewed um, is um, on death row. And um, he murdered a number of young um, teenage women and in, in a very um, sadistic way, a very cruel way, probably the cruelest person that I've, I've met. Um, he was also extremely smart and um, actually had quite a high IQ. And the reason that I say he was probably the most dangerous is, is because of... Um, his his personality makeup and his sexual deviancy and and the combination of those two um, caused him to probably be the most sadistic serial killer that I'd ever met and and I had I, I had gone to see him on multiple occasions so um, and had the opportunity to talk to him and and do some work on it on his cases I've never seen anybody um, never met anybody as as um, really frightening as he is, but delightful to talk to, absolutely charming to talk to, great sense of humor. You could actually see how he was able to convince these young women to get in the car with him. If you put a suit, a nice suit on him, there'd be no way to know if he didn't want you to, um, that he was dangerous. Did you find that personally alarming? I, I found it very personally alarming. Very, I, I knew why he was in prison. I knew what his background was. So I had the benefit of that information. But somebody else who just met him in a restaurant or, um, you know, at, at a you know, church function or at some other function and, and started to talk to him, he would come across in a very positive way, um, in a very charming way, in a very non-threatening way. He's not going to stand there and tell you, oh, by the way, I... I I, I kill and torture people. Um, he would never say that. He would just lower your fears and your and your concerns over him, and kind of uh, pull you into you know in, in, into you know, his his comfort zone. And that's very concerning. That they are there are some people who are out there that are very adept at doing that, and he was he was very good at it. So now the sixty four thousand dollar question, Doctor O'Toole. When you apply what you would learn out of reading your book, Dangerous Instincts, and you were to, you know, properly interview this person, you say he's smart, he's disarming, he just, he totally, would you be able to detect that he was dangerous? You would be able to detect some things um, up front. Yes, you would. You'd be able to detect... um, the narcissism. You'd be able to detect, because it would eventually leak out, um, his attitude towards women. You'd be able to detect um, the level of cruelty in his casual remarks. 
and maybe not the first time that you were around him or the second time, but event, you know, the fifth or the sixth time you were around him, you'd be able to detect those things in him. They would come out slowly and probably not intentionally. So um, sooner or later they would, and that's the key. People think that profilers um, can just size somebody up right away, and we can't do that. I have to know something about you, and I have to know something about you over time, and I have to know something about you in all six areas of your life to be able to get a better sense for who you are. Um, and that's when I can, I, I can really start to put the pieces together. It just doesn't happen by looking at you. Okay, you touched on the narcissistic uh, characteristic. Uh, in your book, you talk about the CDT behaviors, um, and, and that's one of them, uh, the, the things that make people dangerous. Flesh that out real quickly for us, would you? Well, the, the CTD behaviors are the concerning and dangerous behaviors that, um, that people oftentimes miss. And, and one of them is, is um, extreme narcissism. Another is um, a lack of empathy um, towards other people. Another is um, objectifying people. Um, almost dehumanizing people, looking at other people um, as objects. Um, and another one is serious um, anger management issues. And in the book I talk about you don't just cherry pick on these concerning, um, troubling, or dangerous behaviors, but you want to see clusters because we all have a bad day. We lose our temper. We don't think about we don't have empathy for our next-door neighbor because of what's happening to us. So you want to look at, over time, you want to see if these behaviors cluster together in an individual. And um, to be able to do that, you have to observe their behavior, which means that in an interaction with, with them, you have to quiet down and observe them. And what I see happening a lot, especially if, if you're meeting somebody new for the first time, people are excited and they're eager to get to know the other person, but you do way too much talking and you don't observe and listen to what they say and watch how they treat other people. That's the key to, know, to being able to understand somebody, especially if, if you're considering um, hiring them as your um, financial advisor, if you're um, thinking about dating that individual, you need to learn something about them and not the fact that they're good-looking and wear a nice suit. Yeah, I, I think, in a sense, do you believe that this impacts? I mean, you, of course, are a perfect uh, person to answer this. 32 years in law enforcement, 28 years with a bureau, half of which you spent with BAU. So now in your personal relationships, is it does it uh, impact your ability to you know, be friendly and, and, and uh, have friends and a social life? Uh, do you find yourself paranoid or, and, and paranoid is perhaps too strong a word, but, you know, so cautious that you, you find yourself really just off amongst your own, um, you know, cops with cops kind of mentality? No, and it's funny, I, I'm only laughing because um, I get that question quite a bit. Um, people want to know, well, how does that work in, in your real life? And, and actually, the fact that I um, was an FBI agent and have been in law enforcement for a long time, I probably am um, a little bit more um, um, concerned than maybe um, other people are. But if I put that aside, I, I still am... Um, I, like getting out and meeting people, and, you know, I have my circle of friends. They're not all former law enforcement. Um, but when it comes down to those decisions that I have to make about someone where they're coming into my home, they're going to get close to me, whether it's because I'm going to hire them to do something or it's more of a personal relationship, I stop and say, what do I want to know about this person before I take the next step? So it's probably 99% of the time. Um, it doesn't. I don't spend that kind of time worrying about it, ordering the pizza, buying my my shoes at the store, having a conversation with someone on an airplane. I don't vet them like that. But if they are going to come into my comfort zone or my family's comfort zone, um, I realize I need to do a better job of vetting them than I would for these less uh, lesser situations in my life. And I do that. 
I, I spend the time doing it. And if I come to a, a point where I, I, can't, I can't get any more information about someone, it's just not there, it's just not available, or they're not giving me any information, they're not kind of giving me any insights into themselves, um, I've made plenty of decisions to walk away from people. I just don't want to take the chance. You know, I have got 40 more questions here all spelled out to ask you, uh, but we're just about out of time. We've got one minute, and I want everyone to know in that time how they can get your book, how they could reach out to you and learn more about your work, uh, courses that you might teach, uh, uh, your special services that you make available to businesses um, and individuals uh, by way of counseling and advice. So please take that minute to t- share that info with us. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, if people can get get my book um, online at um, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, <clears throat> They can go to my website, which is Dangerous Instincts, or another way to get there is um, through my um, name, MaryEllenOtool.com. And on the website, you'll, um, you'll read more about my background and, and what I do um, and the kinds of, of cases that I've worked. And on there is a way to, to contact me if you're say it's a company and they're interested in some training, if it's, um, you know, a school and they're interested in some threat assessment. I found that um, I, I don't give... I'm sorry, Dr. O'Toole. We're going to get kicked out. The book is Dangerous Instincts. Do check out the website. I want to thank you, Dr. O'Toole, uh, for your willingness to share your work with us and for what you do. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the show and will join us again. Until next time, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.